I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Our story today starts in Southwest Washington around the year 2008, where reports of limping wild elk suddenly started to rise dramatically. But these weren't your usual cases of elk with leg injuries or something easily explainable like that. These elk had hooves that were completely abnormal looking, so obviously misshapen that you could even sometimes see it from a distance. Their hooves were deformed, overgrown, broken, or even just missing altogether, as the severity of the disease caused part of the hoof wall to just fall off. Some of the deformities were so bad, it was even hard to tell it was a hoof. These elk looked like they had like a claw or a slipper on their foot instead of a hoof. And as you can imagine, this is a really painful condition. Suffering and hobbling around, it was awful to watch these elk slowly declining as they struggled to keep up with the herd until they couldn't anymore. And to complicate things, at the time, Wildlife managers still didn't know exactly what caused this horrible elk hoof disease, or if it could spread from one infected elk to another. So in response to this emerging threat to wild elk, and with the strong support of concerned citizens, in 2017, the Washington State Legislature actually mandated Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine as the state lead in developing a program to study this elk hoof disease. To tackle the problem, Washington State needed to bring in someone to lead the effort. They needed someone with experience working with wild ungulates, like deer, elk, and bighorn sheep, studying disease transmission in free-ranging populations. They also needed someone who had experience working for state and federal wildlife agencies who could help bridge the divide between government and academia. And bonus if that person also happens to have a really badass name the perfect person for the job? Enter wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Margaret Wild. Dr. Wild focuses on protecting and promoting the health of wildlife, primarily through the study of emerging infectious diseases. She received her bachelor's in wildlife biology, her veterinary degree, and a PhD in zoology, all from Colorado State University. After working as a researcher with the Colorado Division of Wildlife, She was the chief wildlife veterinarian for the National Park Service for 18 years. In her current research position, she's using a multidisciplinary approach to address a range of questions related to the epidemiology of elk hoof disease, and also developing approaches to implement and evaluate management actions to effectively address this disease. In today's episode, we get to hear all the details about how Dr. Wild and her team at Washington State actually designed and built a facility to study hoof disease in a captive elk herd. By studying elk in a captive setting, this allowed Dr. Wild to set up carefully controlled studies to answer key questions of, one, what actually causes elk hoof disease, two, can it be spread between elk, and three, what other factors such as nutrition or environmental conditions influence this disease process. A few months ago, 
I actually attended a webinar given by Dr. Wild that was offered through the Wildlife Disease Association, and I knew immediately that I needed to get her on the podcast and share her with all of you. Her decades of experience really come through the microphone as you listen to her talk. I had a blast chatting with her. I could have kept going for hours, and I really hope I get the chance to meet her in person someday soon. And don't forget, we're a podcast with a purpose, and one of our main goals is to support all the individuals and organizations out there fighting the good fight and working to keep our wildlife and ecosystems healthy. So if you enjoy this episode and you want to learn more about Dr. Wild's research program at Washington State and how you can help support their work, please go check out the links in the show notes. Now let's get to it. Here's Dr. Margaret Wild. I'm Margaret Wild, and I'm a professor at Washington State University, but I still always think of myself first as a wildlife veterinarian. And I've worked as wildlife veterinarian for, oh gosh, about 30 years, and um, with state and federal wildlife management agencies. But then three years ago, this opportunity at Washington State University um, came and they were looking for someone to do research into an emerging hoof disease in elk in Washington. And it really was just a perfect fit for me, opportunity to get back into research after being away from research um, as my primary focus for quite a while. And so I, I came out here to Washington and now I spend most of my time um, studying an, an emergent hoof disease that, that's known scientifically as treponeme-associated hoof disease, or TAD. Um, or I, I go back and forth. Sometimes I'll call it TAD, but I still prefer to call it elk hoof disease because I think um, we don't know enough to say for sure what's causing this disease. So I, I tend to be a little bit more cautious and say elk hoof disease a lot of the times. So you probably get this a lot, but you have like the perfect name. <laughs> I'm so jealous. The coolest name, Dr. Wild for a wildlife vet um, is just is awesome. Yeah, it must have been a little aside. Must have been fate. I don't know. Either that or I changed it. No, not really. Yeah, <laughs> right. Married into it. No, that's super cool. So you said you've been there for about three years working on this. And what were you doing before that? Give us a little snapshot of of your career? Before I came to Washington State University, I was the chief wildlife veterinarian for the National Park Service for 18 years. And that was really, I mean, about the most cool job you can imagine, um, working with all the national parks across the country and built up the wildlife health program for the national park system. Um, and before that, I was a researcher with the Colorado Division of Wildlife, now Colorado Parks and Wildlife for nine years. And so I started off my career with research and throughout my career, I tried to do as much research as I could. And I focused a lot on chronic wasting disease um, because I was in Colorado and uh, primarily in elk. And so when this opportunity in Washington came about, it just seemed like the perfect fit, getting back to research, working with elk, emerging disease, which is I've pretty much done all my career with CWD. And it was just maybe an opportunity to apply what we've learned with chronic wasting disease to another emergent disease in elk. And uh, that's what I'm doing now. 
So have you mostly been focused on elk and ungulates for most of your career or have you done some other stuff along the way? Yeah, I've, I've worked with ungulates primarily. I started off um, doing uh, my PhD with bighorn sheep and uh, respiratory disease in them. And so I, I've, I've worked with chronic wasting disease, but I really focused on elk because so much of the work that's done with CWD is with deer. Um, but in the, the national park areas that I worked in, we had CWD and elk. And so I've, I've, I worked um, primarily with elk there, but also, I mean, throughout my career, I've been able to work with a lot of different species um, from, carnivores like Canada lynx and reintroduction in Colorado when I worked for the Colorado Division of Wildlife and uh, endangered Florida panthers and getting to immobilize those when I worked for the National Park Service down in Big Cypress National Preserve, uh, a variety of species. But there's something that always pulls me back to, to the wild ungulates, especially elk. They're just really, I don't know, there's, they're just really special animals, really magnificent animals. And um, I'll, I'll tell you more in a little bit, but we have elk in captivity. And you, working around them, you just learn that they are so smart and they're so adaptable um, that you see that out in the wild too. And, and so they're, they're just a great animal to work with and, and to try to do good things for. With all of her years of experience investigating diseases in wild elk, Dr. Wild was brought on board at Washington State University in 2018 to lead their research effort studying elk hoof disease. And that's where our story begins. It's getting to be a long story now that I've been here for three years. It used to be a really quick little story, <laughs> but, but now that we've got a lot of research going, um, it, there's quite a bit to it. But maybe I'll just start with describing what elk hoof disease is, um, most people haven't seen it because right now uh, the disease is known to occur in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and California in the northern part of California. And so if you're not in one of those areas, or even if you are, and you, you don't go out and watch elk a lot, you probably haven't seen it. But if, if you were out in the wild um, watching some elk and they had um, elk hoof disease, what you'd see is this is a debilitating and painful disease. And um, I've worked most of my career with chronic wasting disease. And I think of chronic wasting disease as causing more or less like a dementia. And, and the animals just kind of fade away and zone out. And, and I, I never thought of it as being really very painful. But this, this elk hoof disease is, is different. And it really kind of pulls on your heartstrings when you see these animals. With, with elk hoof disease because they're, they're, they're lame. Um, they have sores on their feet with deformed or overgrown hoof capsules. Uh, uh, sometimes those hoof capsules will even slough off and leave a very painful open wound. And so you'll see the elk limping, um, having trouble keeping up with the herd maybe, uh, losing their body condition because they're trying to fight off that that infection and just having a harder time getting around, getting enough calories in. And many of them eventually will die from the debilitation. Um, so it, it's sad to see. Uh, and we would love to be able to do something. People in Washington um, went to their legislature 
in uh, 2017 and said, you know, we're tired of seeing this. We want something done. And so the Washington State Legislature actually um, assigned Washington State University as the lead for research into this disease and came up with considerable funding to support the research at WSU. So it's a, it's a bit of a unique situation. We generally think of um, research into wildlife diseases being done by the State Wildlife Management Agency. Uh, in this case, it's an academic university that, that is doing leading the research, but we're working very closely with the State Wildlife Management Agencies and, and also the tribes and, and the federal managers as well. Um, and uh, conducting research that we hope eventually, I say will reduce the harm of this disease. I think everyone would love if we could come up with a veterinary cure. Um, you know, like a, people always come up with, well, you know, there, there's a similar disease in uh, cattle um, in the United States called bovine digital dermatitis uh, or hairy heelwort. And so that, that's a fairly common in dairy cattle. And with dairy cattle, what they do to, to manage the disease is have the, the cattle walk through foot baths. And then sometimes they also use a, a local um, antibiotic treatment. And that's good at reducing the lesions, but oftentimes those lesions will reoccur. And so they're not actually curing the cattle, they're just keeping the disease in check. But there's no vaccine for that disease in, in cattle, um, and there's no treatment that completely cures it. So even if we could have our hands on the wildlife, it would be very challenging to, to eradicate the disease. And what we know in wildlife is everything is so much more challenging when you have a free-ranging animal that, you know, maybe you're lucky to see once and get a radio collar on it and get some samples and then maybe track its radio collar after it dies to get some samples after death. And that's considered pretty good if you can do that. So it's just not logistically feasible to think that we're going to come up with a veterinary cure as much as I would like to, as much as everyone would like to. So what we're yeah. trying to do is learn as much as we can about the disease so we can help managers implement practices and policies that will reduce the harm of the disease mm. to people and to elk. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that's such a key point. That reminds me a lot of what Craig Stevens has published a lot with just the whole concept of harm reduction with wildlife health. We're talking about Dr. Craig Steven a veterinarian and former CEO of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. I put a link to the publication I'm referring to in the show notes. I think when the general public hears about wildlife disease, they're like, oh, isn't there, like you said, can't you just run all the elk through a foot bath and just cure it? Or can't you just put out, you know, bait with antibiotics in it or, you know, shoot them with a vaccine from a helicopter? And you're like, well, maybe on a tiny scale we could do that, but it's not going to make an impact on the population. So how do we find these other hinge points where we can increase the overall health of the population so that they're more resilient to these diseases versus trying to outright cure a disease? So that sounds a lot of what you're talking about here, which just makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I have to admit, I, I got 
the, the term harm reduction from Craig Stevens' um, publications. And I think he's he's exactly right. That's a really good way to define, I think, in general, what we do in, in wildlife health. We're not eradicating diseases. Um, that's an extremely rare occurrence that that happens. Um, we are managing diseases in, in some places and hopefully preventing diseases. And when you think about it, that's that's reducing the harm that the diseases are doing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe let's circle back and dig deeper into what what TAD or what elk hoof disease actually is. So with what you were saying before, this is way more than just, for example, like hoof rot or something like, like that. This is actually causing deformity of the hoof. Um, and so what's the actual um, causative agent here? Let's kind of dig into some of the details. Yeah, well, that is the, the, the point of a, of a lot of our research going on right now is to try to figure out what the cause is. Um, right now, the disease is called treponeme-associated hoof disease. And so when we say treponeme-associated, it's important to remember that association does not mean causation. Mm. So we've got an association with these treponema bacteria, which are spiral-shaped bacteria uh, that cause a similar disease in, in livestock, uh, cattle um, in the United States, and then sheep in some other parts of the world. So these treponemes are a genus of spiral-shaped bacteria that are involved in hoof disease in livestock. And now, according to Dr. Wild, it looks like they're also associated with this emerging elk hoof disease. But treponemes aren't just a problem for hoofed animals. Other infamous examples of treponeme bacteria include treponema pallidum, which causes syphilis in humans. We don't know for certain that it's just these treponema. Um, and when, when I came here, the, the stakeholders, uh, the, the people that were, were really interested in, in knowing what was going on with the elk and with this disease in Washington had other concerns as well. And those included, um, for example, um, use of pesticides and fertilizers in the forestry practices in areas of southwestern Washington where this disease um, originated and is still at its highest prevalence. And so um, their hypothesis was that the lesions were caused by this herbicide and fertilizer use. Um, also perhaps mineral deficiencies because we know elk in, in that uh, area where the disease was first uh, identified are low in copper and selenium, um, minerals that are important in, in immune function and hoof health. And the area had really undergone a lot of, of habitat changes with decreasing amount of forage available. Uh, so there was a concern about nutritional status of the elk. <clears throat> and with the, with the uh, it, it took about, oh, I, I guess, you know, maybe about six years or so from the time the first, the disease was first uh, described by the, by the Washington Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife to a, a working, uh, they working with a group in the UK were able to culture uh, treponema uh, species out of the feet of these elk. And then additional uh, investigations 
um, started being able to diagnose the disease by finding the, the spiral-shaped organisms um, under the microscope using a silver stain on, on sections of tissue that are collected from the feet. And so now we, we have a pretty good idea that um, we've got this, this case definition that is the presence of the, the inflammation that you can see microscopically and the, the spiral-shaped organisms, the spirochetes on, on uh, uh, histopathology or with the microscope using the silver stain. But what we don't know is if any, something else caused the lesions and then those treponema just came in and were a secondary invader. So remember that correlation does not imply causation. And so in this case, just because those treponeme bacteria were present in the diseased alcoves, that doesn't necessarily mean that the treponemes alone were responsible for causing the disease. There may have been other factors at play. And so the first experiment that we wanted to do was to confirm that this was in fact an infectious transmissible disease that didn't require other um, initiators, for example, pesticides or fertilizers or severe nutritional compromise. And so um, the, the way that it seemed most reasonable to me that we would investigate that and many other questions that we have is to work with captive elk in a controlled research setting. And that sounds really easy, but the first thing we had to do was build the research facility that, that was biosecure and safe for the elk and so safe for people and um, get the funding to build that and then build it. Once we got it built, uh, then capture wild elk and bring them into the facility acclimate them so we could use them on the studies. And then unfortunately, right when that happened was uh, February of, of 2020. And I think we all oh, no. happened then. <laughs> so things oh, no. got, got delayed a little bit, but um, in the, at the end of 2020, we got our, our first study going and it was with a master's student that I've got. Uh, his name is Zach Robinson. And Zach grew up in Southwest Washington observing the, this disease in the wild elk. So he was really passionate about coming and studying disease. So what we did is uh, the first study that we, the, we did with the captive elk was to expose them to hooves that we collected from elk in the wild that died or were uh, harvested or euthanized that had treponema associated hoof disease. We, we took those hooves, quickly got them into a minus 80 freezer ultra cold freezer so we would maintain the organisms that were there and then on the day of the challenge we got them out and chopped them up into pieces and mixed them with soil and put them in the pen with the elk and then to make sure that we were getting good contact between the elk hooves and and the soil and uh, this, this hoof inoculum mixture we actually took some put it between their toes and put a light bandage on to, to hold it there and after about uh, three to four months, we started seeing persistent lesions that looked just like the ones that we see with elk in the wild that have TAD. And then we continued to follow those. And by about four and a half months, they were to the point that they were quite severe. Um, 
the, the lesions in, in the wild are graded one, which is the most mild, to four, which is when that hoof capsule sloughs off. And these elk in the pens that we have that were uh, challenged with the material, by about four and a half months, they already had uh, moderate to severe lesions that were graded as, as grade three out of four. And so, and they look just like the lesions that we see in the wild. And we took a biopsy of those lesions and looked at it under the microscope. Sure enough, uh, saw the same histologic changes that we see uh, with elk in the wild. And then we also took part of that biopsy and did um, a, a 16S um, amplification uh, investigation, which is where you, you take uh, the material, and you're more or less kind of very, very simply put, kind of looking at the DNA to see what species of bacteria are there. So you kind of think of it as like a fingerprint of the different types of bacteria that can be detected. And doing that, we also found treponema um, in those um, samples as well. So it was very clear that we had uh, an, an infectious and transmissible disease based on uh, transmission to four of our treatment animals that were exposed to the hooves in the soil. And we had two control elk that we did everything this else the same, but the hooves that they were exposed to had been autoclaved to kill all the microorganisms in them. And mm. they stayed completely normal. So it's a small sample size, but 100% of our treatment elk and neither of our control elk um, got lesions. So pretty good indication that we've got uh, transmissible disease. That must have been a pretty exciting moment in your research group. It, it really was exciting. And, and you're always you're always a little bit conflicted because you feel bad for the elk because you're glad that they're getting these lesions. Right. <laughs> but the reason that we have them here is to see uh, if we can learn to help other elk. And so you see them and you get really excited and then you say, oh, but I'm sorry, elk. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think it's important to note too that uh, of course our studies are overseen by the Washington State University Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. And um, we have humane endpoints. So for example, out of those four elk, um, three of them reached humane endpoints where they were euthanized when we could no longer uh, control their pain with um, a, an anti-inflammatory drug. Um, uh, it's uh, meloxicam for, for people who know the specifics. And if you don't, it's more or less aspirin for elk. And we were able to mix that into their, um, we mixed it into an, an apple and they got an apple every day with, with, their, with their pain relieving medicine in it so that um, they, weren't, they weren't undergoing too much pain as they develop these lesions that in the wild cause really excruciating lesions. But yeah, it, it really is, it's, it's an exciting finding. And it's, what I found is I've never really worked with students before. And so now to be working with students and to see through their eyes and to give them that, um, that opportunity for discovery, it, it's, it's really even more cool working with the students. But then on the other hand, you got to tell them, you know, it doesn't always work like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got really, you were very fortunate that 
that we had a really well-designed study and everything out came out so clean. So I have so many questions. I'm <laughs> trying to figure out, oh, what do I ask next? Where do we go from I, I take such a long time to answer each one. <laughs> no, it was, it was awesome. I'm literally here as you're telling the story. I'm just like hanging on every word like, wow, that's, that's so interesting. I kind of vaguely knew, knew about your studies, but to hear it firsthand of, I didn't know all the specifics of, you know, you designed a really cool study and just the way you designed the control and the treatment makes a lot of sense. And the fact that you got such great results um, speaks to the fact that it was a, just sounds like a really well designed study, which is so rare with wildlife health. Yeah. And that's what I think that, that captive animals can do for us. We learn so much so quickly from them that it's just really hard to learn in the wild when we don't have controlled environments. And now there's so many more things we can do. So our next step is we'd like to try to see if we can transmit the disease a little bit more naturally without the bandaging, and then also come up with a, a very reliable way to reproduce the disease in, in the elk in the, in the pens. And then what we'll be able to do is test some of the factors that maybe make them more or less susceptible to disease. So uh, their nutritional level or their mineral status. Um, we'll also be able to look at uh, transmission between different species. Because one question that we have is, these elk live in the same area as deer, and yet we haven't detected this disease in any other wildlife in, in Washington. And so is there something about deer that they don't get the disease? Or um, is it just that we haven't detected it there yet? Uh, also in, um, in Switzerland, they, there, there's just been a report of a European bison that has a similar treponema associated digital dermatitis. And so all of a sudden I thought, oh my gosh, you know, maybe at some point we need to look and see if, if American bison are susceptible to what, what these elk have, because as the disease continues to expand, um, elk are going to be coming into contact with a broader range of other wildlife species. And if um, we need to know what the susceptibility of those other wildlife species is. So in the pens, we'd be able to do those, those kinds of studies. Also um, looking at uh, perhaps the, the uh, origin of this disease, if we put cattle with bovine digital dermatitis together with, with elk, would we see the disease transfer to elk? And vice versa, if we had elk with TAD, would we see transmission to, to cattle? And so we've got years of studies <laughs> <laughs> already uh, planned out just for the captive animals. And that's only a portion of our research. Yeah, hopefully you have years of funding too. Yeah, I mean, this, the state of Washington has been absolutely phenomenal with providing uh, the, the funding and the support that we need to do this, this research. So I'm assuming that we don't see the, the treponeme bacteria in healthy asymptomatic elk, or has that been looked at? Yeah, when you look histologically or uh, under the microscope, it, it was not, it is, it's not seen in a foot that appears visually healthy. However, um, 
it's, you know, it's just like when you try to define health and disease anytime, there's always that gray zone in the middle. And so there's these, some of these hooves are clearly normal. Some of these hooves are clearly have TAD. And then there's that area in between where you're just starting to see some changes. Um, and it's usually in the interdigital space, the area between the toes. And you start seeing some changes there. And it, it can be uh, pitting or uh, which is probably loss of the, the keratin layer of the skin, which could make the, the skin more susceptible to having things like treponemes get in there. Um, and we've, we've detected treponemes in a, using the, the, um, the molecular techniques. We've detected treponemes in a couple of those animals that didn't have uh, typical graded lesions of TAD but they also look like the foot wasn't completely normal and they came from areas where TAD occurred. And so maybe those were early lesions. Um, but to answer your question a little bit more directly, we've not seen uh, the treponemes using the molecular techniques or histologically in areas uh, where we don't have TAD and the, the hooves look normal. Um, so the, the treponema have only been associated with hooves with some amount of abnormality. So now to recap. It's pretty well established that these treponeme bacteria are present in the hooves of elk with this particular disease we're calling elk hoof disease, aka treponeme-associated hoof disease, aka TAD. And we also know that these treponemes are not found in healthy, normal elk hooves. And through Dr. Wild's research, we now have some pretty solid evidence that this is a transmissible disease that has the potential to spread between elk. But one remaining question is whether the treponemes are acting alone in causing the disease, or are there other bacteria involved as well? In the early work we've done, we see an overrepresentation of the, the spirochete family that has the treponema in it in the lesioned feet versus the normal feet. But we also see an overrepresentation of some other families. And they see similar things in these livestock diseases with digital dermatitis. So um, things like mycoplasma and um, porphyromonas and fusobacterium are all families that were overrepresented in this, the, the first set of samples that we looked at. And so a lot of people think that bovine digital dermatitis is a, a polybacterial disease. And I think we've probably got something similar with uh, elk hoof disease as well, is there's probably a consortium of bacteria that are in there. They changed the microbial ecology and microbial community. And then at some point those treponemes can really take off and they're the ones that dominate and that we look for but who else is important there too? Another question you may be asking yourself right now is, how big of a problem is elk hoof disease? How many elk are affected and is it spreading? The disease was studied primarily in the, the area where it emerged in Southwest Washington. And the work that Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife did over about the last decade showed that in some local areas there, 
up to, you know, say three quarters or more of a group of elk could be lame and affected with TAD. Um, that is very much on the local level and also, you know, probably having impacts on, on the population um, of, of those elk and their ability to reproduce, decreasing reproduction probably and increasing mortality, which is, is probably contributed to a declining population. Uh, it may be um, uh, plateauing out a little bit more recently. The good news is, well, I guess it's good news and bad news. So as we've continued to do surveillance, we found the disease over a much broader area than was initially realized. Uh, three years ago when I came here, the disease was known to occur pretty much in Western Washington and Northern Oregon. And then I worked with, with wildlife managers in, in, uh, those in Washington and Oregon, also Idaho and California, and asked them to submit any hoof that they had that looked abnormal. And in some cases, um, some normal hooves from certain areas. And what we found was a much broader distribution of the disease uh, than was initially realized. And so over into Idaho, um, more, more counties in Washington and Oregon that were initially realized, and then down into California. Even though we found it over a broader area, we haven't seen any areas where it's been as high a prevalence as it is in the area where it originated in Southwest Washington. So does that mean that it will continue to be uh, occur at low prevalences or even be sporadic uh, throughout this area or with time or changes in the animal, the pathogen or the environment, will we see increases? Is it the, the disease just got there and it hasn't had a chance to take off yet? Those are a lot of questions that we don't know the answers to yet. Hopefully it's just occurring sporadically in these other areas and we won't see outbreaks, but I don't think we know enough to say for certain that we won't see more outbreaks in, in more areas. Mm. Yeah, the thing that comes to my mind is if it gets to a place, like for example, places in Wyoming where they do have like elk feedlots and things like that, and if it became established in one of those places, um, that seems like that wouldn't be a great thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime, as you know, you congregate wildlife, it's just the perfect opportunity for diseases to spread. And, and that gets back to the importance of knowing this is a transmissible uh, disease, because if it wasn't transmissible, then it doesn't really matter if you're bringing animals together, right? You're, you're not increasing the, the risk that another animal is going to get it. But when you know that a disease is transmissible, uh, it, it can influence your management to know that you shouldn't be bringing animals artificially together. And, and one thing I wanted to mention is, is sometimes people say, well, this disease already occurs because I, I know there's all these, these lame elk, for example, in the National Elk Refuge where, where they, uh, there is elk feeding. And that, as you mentioned, was um, more of a typical foot rot. And it, it appears uh, from the samples that we've looked at, it's different than this treponema-associated hoof disease. Traditional foot rot is generally, you see uh, bacteria like Fusobacterium or Dichylobacter in there, 
and you see lesions that look a little bit different grossly. And with TAD, um, we can identify those lesions based on the presence of the spirochetes and the, the visual lesion that looks different than traditional foot rot. But we haven't seen it, for example, in those areas of Wyoming, in the National Elk Refuge or uh, feed areas in Wyoming. But I think those are good areas to be keeping an eye out for it. So now I wanted to circle back and talk about the captive elk herd that Dr. Wild studies, because I still had so many questions about her research facility and how all of that works. What does your actual facility look like? Are these elk out in big pens? How do you actually house these elk and, and what does that look like? Yeah, and that, that's a really good question. When I was designing the facility, I had to think about what do we need? And so I made the assumption that we would be dealing with a, an infectious and transmissible disease. And if that's the case, then if we do the workout on a pasture, we're pretty much going to be able to do that once <laughs> and then you've got the pasture right. contaminated and it'll be really hard to have any controls out there. So um, when I designed the study, I, I fashioned it after a facility that I worked at with the Colorado Division of Wildlife, the Foothills Wildlife Research Facility. And there we had holding pastures where healthy animals were held. And then we also had individual pens. And uh, that is where the, the studies can be done. It also allows you to house animals individually. So you're looking at changes that occur to an individual animal rather than a group of animals. And so the facility is designed here at WSU where we've got a couple of holding pastures. And the elk that are waiting to go on study and being acclimated they live in those pastures and only healthy elk live in those pastures because we don't want to contaminate them. And that way we can have a source of elk available for use in the studies. And elk on the study are housed in individual pens and we've got 10 individual pens that are concrete lined. They're outdoors. Uh, they have a roof over about two thirds of the pen so the animal has some shelter. The floor of the pen is concrete, and then three feet on all sides is concrete, so they're biosecure. And then um, they're made with uh, wooden um, wood slat, and so the elk can see and smell each other, know who's next door to them, but they don't have physical contact, particularly with their feet. And so we've got these 10 biosecure pens, bring the elk into them and do the studies in those biosecure pens. So we are, are keeping all the pathogens in and each elk is only exposed to what we want it to expose to and not exposed to, to everything. And that way we can keep our controls separate from our, our treatment animals and uh, keep treatment animals from each other so they're not spreading things among themselves. Then we've also got uh, handling facilities where we can bring them through, run them through a tub and into a specially designed squeeze and lift chute and work them back into their isolation pens from there. Clearly a lot of thought went into the planning of the elk research facility. And they didn't just have to worry about how to keep things clean and biosecure. 
but also how to design everything so that it would be comfortable for the elk and allow the team to safely work with them. Things as simple as not having rectangular pastures, but instead having pie, pie, a piece of, of a pasture that's shaped like a piece of pie or triangular. So when you move the elk down, they go from an area with a lot of room and then they're funneled down to smaller area and down into uh, an alleyway and into individual pens. And which way every pen door swings is important. And being able to uh, be able to feed them through a, a, a window in, in the, the wall of the, the pen. So you don't have to go in with a wild elk to feed it. You can also check its water from that window. And just, just small things like that make it a lot safer for the, the people and a lot more safe and comfortable for the elk too. And so with, at your facility, it's, it's pretty biosecure, I would imagine. So probably not something that a lot of visitors can, can come to either. Right. And, and that is a good point. We've got uh, a perimeter fence around the, the whole facility and we don't allow visitors unless it's on, you know, kind of a scientific or um, special basis because we, we don't want to stress out the elk by having additional people around. We don't want to risk um, bringing pathogens in or taking them out. So uh, we are a closed facility because of that. Yeah, makes sense. So nobody out there plan any trips to go see the facility. It's not a petting zoo. You can't, you can't go there. Right, right. Yeah. Because as, as much as, you know, I, I talk about how good the elk are, they're so good because in part, they get accustomed to the routine. And as long as you do the same thing over and over and over, they're good for it, good with it. But when you change things up and like a lot of people show up, say for an institutional animal care and use committee inspection or something, they immediately know, whoa, this is different, you know? And then they, they kind of start getting a little more um, worked up because it's not what they're expecting. Yeah. Are they, do they tend to be pretty stressy and flighty, especially because I think you mentioned that the initial um, individuals in your herd were from the wild. So how did they adapt? Were they a little bit crazy when they first get in or do they kind of adapt pretty well to a captive environment? Yeah. Elk are really remarkable. They, they adapt really nicely. If you tried to do this with say white-tailed deer, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work well. Um, but elk, I kind of, relate them, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but I'm kind of a big dog person. And, and I like big dogs because they've got the confidence. They need, don't need to be barking all the time and showing how tough they are. They're just like, yeah, okay, you know, I'm, I'm good. Whereas little dogs need to be yapping all the time. And I, I kind of see elk as those big dogs and they don't, they don't have to be jumping and, and all flighty. Um, they're big enough and tough enough that, that they, they'll sometimes they'll stand and look at you and go, yeah, I can take you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so you need to know how to work around them safely, but they're not nearly as flighty as, as something like um, deer are. And we start off, when we first bring them in, we've got them on a, a drug called Halperidol, which is a human antipsychotic. And it just kind of puts them into this really mellow zone for about three days. And so when they go into the pastures for the first time, they just walk off the trailer and they'll walk around the pasture. 
And that gives them an opportunity to learn where the fences are and um, just slowly wake up and realize that they're, they're in captivity. And then what we also do is have a couple of, um, of bottle-raised animals and or, or really tractable animals that are in the pastures with them. And, and so they're not afraid of anything. And they just go, you know, come on down here and here's the food and here's the water. And when a feeder comes in, those tractable animals don't run away. And then pretty quickly, the new wild animals watching the, the tractable animals and learning that we're not doing anything bad to them, we're just bringing them feed. Um, within a couple of months, they really calm down. It's really remarkable. And then the animals that are in the, the isolation pens uh, for, for a couple of months, again, they, they get to where when you walk uh, down the alleyway in front of their pen, where initially they'll run to the back of the pen and maybe pace, they, they get to where they, they come to the front of the pen and they're, they're, waiting, they're waiting for their food. So it, elk are just a great animal to work with in captivity. That's awesome. I can really tell how much love and respect <laughs> you have for this species. <laughs> it's I do. Cool. It's like coming through this, this screen. Yeah, I, I really do. And it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to do this kind of research when at the end, you know, you're trying to give them disease and some of them are going to die. You're going to have to euthanize some of them. Um, it's really a hard thing to have to do, but just have to keep thinking about, well, this is, this is for the good of the population. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a, a good point. And kind of circling back to what we were talking about, you know, before where it's like, yeah, it's with this research, you don't want to be excited when you found out that it was transmissible and the other elk were coming down with it because that's, you know, for those individual elk, that's not a, a good thing, but you know, where your work is potentially saving suffering and saving the lives of hundreds, thousands of other elk potentially in the future. So, you know, this work on, on a small number of, of elk um, is, is really important. Yeah, and that's part of the reason it makes me feel really good too when you said earlier, oh, that's a that was a really well-designed study. And it makes me feel so good because we've we've got to be so careful in everything we do because we don't want to waste these animals' lives. We want to make sure that what we're doing is really going to get us to the answer, um, regardless of what the answer is. Um, we want to be learning. One of the things we always like to ask our guests are for folks listening out there, is there anything they can do either to donate towards your research or anything, any call to action for our listeners that would really help you in your research or just, you know, elk conservation in general? Is there any place you'd like to mobilize our listeners to? Well, um, if, if people are interested in learning more about our work, if you just Google WSU, Washington State University, elk disease, um, we've got a pretty good website, and there's an area on there it, that if you're really interested, you can sign up and receive updates via a listserv that we have, or you can just pop back to the website every once in a while and see um, what, what new things we've posted. Um, I have to admit, we're always, I'm, I'm better about sending out the updates with, with the most current information than, than updating the website, though. There's also an area on there, you know, if, if people are, are really moved to, there's an area to donate to our research. And we always make 
really good use of the funds that we have. Um, and, you know, just in general, I think it's really important to think about those things we, that we can do every day to protect wildlife habitat and to maintain the resilience of the populations. So I, I work, for example, with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and they've been a great partner to us as, as well as the, the state and tribal and federal wildlife management agencies in, in making sure that we're protecting habitat. And um, specifically for elk hoof disease, things that I think about are, um, you know, if you live in a state where feeding wildlife is, is legal, which it is in some states, including Washington, unfortunately, um, you're not actually doing the animals a favor by feeding them. And so, you know, don't feed deer and elk. Um, it, it, it brings them together and can help spread diseases like, like hoof disease. Another thing I think people can think about is if they live in an area um, where there are elk is to watch out for elk that are, that are limping, report those. Um, if you particularly live in an area where elk hoof disease hasn't been um, identified before, say you live in Montana or Nevada um, and, and you harvest an animal that has a, an odd looking hoof, contact your state wildlife management agency and let them know. And um, they may be able to uh, make the decision if that sample can be brought in for diagnostics. And something that's a little bit different that I recommend now is if you live in an area where there's a lot of elk hoof disease, like in Southwest Washington or, or Northern uh, Oregon or Eastern, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Western Washington, or, or now some areas in Northern California, I'd suggest if you can to take those hooves out with you and make sure that you dispose of them properly in a landfill. Um, if you leave them on site, they may actually contribute to more disease, um, a kind of a hot spot of disease. You definitely don't want to take those hooves and then say throw them out in your backyard 200 miles away where you might get a disease going um, somewhere else. But to take the hooves out and dispose of them safely in a landfill so that they're out of the disease transmission chain and, and they won't be um, infecting any other elk. So those are a few things that I can think of that, that, that people can do. Unfortunately, there's not like one thing, um, but you know, it's just like anything. If, if everybody does a little bit, then we can chip away at, at some of these, these bad things that are happening. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.